1: Primum non nocere. First do no harm. Have you heard that? That is part of historically the Hippocratic Oath that medical professionals, doctors in particular in America uh, take when they begin to practice medicine. And it's a great concept. It's a great idea. I love it. Not doing harm uh, in medicine makes a lot of sense. And of course, I suppose not always 100% uh, doable. Uh, some treatments are will have to cause harm to create a proper outcome. Many surgeries are like that. But the question I have is, is first do no harm actually being implemented on any kind of a regular basis in modern Western medicine today, particularly in the United States of America? And the answer, I think, just might be no. I'm Jared St. Clair. This is Vitality Radio. Welcome to another episode of Vitality Radio and the Vitality Radio podcast, available anywhere that you find podcasts. I am excited for this episode to we'll be talking about antidepressants. So let me just kind of lay out what my plan is. First, I'm going to talk about uh, the theory behind antidepressants because it is indeed a theory. I'm going to talk about whether or not that theory has actually held up to scientific studies. I'm going to talk about the FDA's role in how antidepressants have been approved and marketed. And I'm going to talk about things that you may want to consider discussing with your doctor, pharmacist, uh, or other health professional in terms of what you could do as either alternatives to or additions to your uh, antidepressant uh, that you may be on. This is a really important topic. Uh, the, the number is estimated that of adults in America, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 13 to 17% of us on antidepressants. It's a little higher in women than it is in, in men. And that's at any given time. There are also, of course, a lot of people in this country who are on them not Consistently, But on and off of them, uh, trying them and getting off of them, finding they need something again years later and so on and so forth. So the number is much higher in terms of adults who have actually used them. And then there are people who are on them as children and uh, preteens, teens and so on. So there's a lot of people affected by it, but if you are one who is not affected or not using antidepressant, but is affected by depression or anxiety or things like that, this show will matter to you as well. I would dare say, though, that if you are someone who is not a complete hermit, uh, you know people who are affected by antidepressants. I think that it touches uh, just about everybody, depression and anxiety and things like that at some point, and many people people to the point of seeking professional help. So I love the topic. There's a lot to learn here, and I hope that you'll listen with an open mind. Everything that I'm going to share with you is not my opinion. It is all research that has been done by medical professionals. I'm going to be dealing a lot with a a Stanford University uh, medical school or sorry, Harvard University Medical School, guy named Irving Kirsch and the work that he and his colleagues have done uh, and uh, many others. But all of this is medically documented, clinically documented stuff. I'm really going to be just about opinionless other than just interjecting a few of my thoughts here and there. But everything I'm going to be talking about is researched and proven. Okay, first, do no harm. I'm going to read to you, uh, not verbatim, but a lot of it will be a word for word from a an article that was published on the CDC's website. Again, I told you this is all clinical stuff, not my opinion at all, although my opinion... Um, it doesn't change much after I've read all this. And uh, it's, uh, this was written by Irving Kirsch, who's with uh, from Harvard Medical School. In the abstract, he says, Antidepressants are supposed to work by fixing a chemical imbalance, specifically a lack of serotonin in the brain. Indeed, their supposed effectiveness is the primary evidence for the chemical imbalance theory. And I love that word, theory, because remember, theory... Uh, It means nothing's proven yet. Uh, There's just some ideas or some reasons to believe that that theory could be true. But analyses of the published data and the unpublished data that were hidden by drug companies reveals that most, if not all, of the benefits are due to the placebo effect. There's some important words there. Analyses of the published data and the unpublished data that were hidden by drug companies. You'll learn later that they had to use the... uh, Freedom of Information Act to get some of these studies released, most, if not all of the benefits are due to the placebo effect. That's a pretty strong statement, but this doctor has been making this statement since 1998, 23 years. And since then, the FDA itself has run a similar study multiple other doctors and researchers have run studies and every one of these studies and meta-analyses where they look at multiple different studies has shown almost identical results and that is that the by and large the effect of antidepressants is a placebo so I said this is going to be a two-parter and I'm sure it will be because we're going to talk about the placebo effect a lot today and how that's actually been proven and why it's so why it's so significant when it comes to antidepressants. That'll be the primary focus and then towards the end of the show I am going to give you some really important nuggets that have actually good supportive evidence clinically that they help with depression without you having to take a single of any kind. Okay, so he, he goes on to say in the abstract, even the small statistical differences between antidepressants and placebos may be an enhanced placebo effect due to the fact that most patients and doctors in clinical trials successfully break blind, meaning that it no longer is a double blind study. The serotonin theory is as close as any theory in the history of science to having been proved wrong instead of curing depression popular antidepressants may induce a biological vulnerability making people more likely to become depressed in the future so that's what that study states in abstract and I'll give you the details in a moment but before we get into the rest of that let's talk a little bit about depression itself because it's a bit of a confusing topic you know what is depression what isn't depression and uh, what how is it Clinically diagnosed by your doctor or uh, psychiatrist or whoever you might be going to for your depressive symptoms. First off, major depressive disorder is what we're talking about MDD. This is the type that is generally. Uh, supposed to be treated by antidepressants, specifically serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs. So if you're not familiar with it, the DSM is a book, uh, the current DSM-5, that has diagnostic criteria for mental health issues, schizophrenia, attention deficit disorder, depression, uh, chronic anxiety, and so on and so forth. And the reason there's a book for diagnostic criteria is because there's not a test for these things. There isn't a blood test that can determine whether or not you have depression. There isn't an x-ray or a urinalysis or anything like that. So it's all based on how you feel, because of course that's what depression is, right? It's a mental emotional thing more so than a physical thing. So According to DSM, which is what doctors are supposed to refer to to diagnose major depressive disorder, five or more of the following symptoms must be present nearly every day during a two-week period. So it's only two weeks and you have to have five of these nearly every day for a two-week period. So that's in and of itself a little confusing. The core symptoms would be depressed mood most of the day. Now, that's going to be a moving target depending on the individual, but regardless if the individual says, yes, I feel depressed most of the day. Or markedly decreased interest or pleasure in almost all activities. Additional symptoms would be clinically significant weight loss or increase or decrease in appetite. Insomnia or hypersomnia. Psychomotor agitation or retardation fatigue or loss of energy, feelings of worthlessness or excessive or inappropriate guilt, diminished ability to think or concentrate or indecisiveness, recurrent thoughts of death or suicidal ideation. So there are a total of nine criteria and about five of those, well, five of those are supposed to be met on a near daily basis over a two-week period of time. And that's how depression is diagnosed. So here's the thing with that that the problem with that, and any logical person can see it, and that is that A, those are all very subjective things. You know, what one person's depressed most of the day is another person's, yeah, I feel pretty good. It's very subjective across the board. So that's the first thing. But the second thing is there's no way to verify any of that evidence or any of, that, uh, any of that symptomology through any type of a test. You can't look at your blood. They can't do, like I say, a urinalysis or a hair analysis or any other kind of analysis to indicate that this is a problem. It's not like diagnosing cancer or diabetes where you can look at the A1C levels or find a tumor in a scan of some sort. And so as such, it's a very difficult thing to diagnose properly. And then, of course, the doctor has his or her preconceived feelings about the patient. The patient has his or hers. So there's a lot of room for human error in the diagnostics of it, period. Then the question is, if they're diagnosing a condition and then they're basing the treatment on a theory. I think this is really important. The theory being that not having enough serotonin in the brain is why somebody gets that level of depression and let me just ask you are there reasons why you could be fatigued or have a loss of energy that have nothing to do with serotonin deficiency is it possible that you could lose a lot of weight or have a decrease or increase in appetite that you could have insomnia or hypersomnia or feelings of worthlessness, or depressed mood most of the day that has nothing to do with the serotonin deficiency. Perhaps somebody died. Perhaps uh, you're having a struggle with one of your children, or your spouse, your boyfriend, or your girlfriend. Maybe you've got gripes about what your church is doing, or your pastor, bishop, or whatever it is. Maybe there's issues at work, Maybe financially you're struggling. There's all these things that can cause us to feel depressed that probably have nothing to do with the chemical imbalance, except then the question is, okay, well, is, you know, chicken or the egg, right? Did we get depressed and therefore now, or sorry, did we have things happen that are depressing and now we have a serotonin deficiency and if we fix the serotonin deficiency, it will make us feel better? Or does depression come because of a serotonin deficiency? And if we take something that that will boost our serotonin levels, then we'll feel better. Or does serotonin have nothing to do with depression at all? Well, the theory is it has a lot to do with depression. So let's talk about the theory. Serotonin and depression, a disconnect between the advertisements and the scientific literature, is an article written by Jeffrey R. LaCasse and Jonathan Leo. And they say given the multifactorial nature of depression and anxiety, and the ambigu- ambiguities inherent in psychiatric diagnosis and treatment, like what we just talked about, some have questioned whether the mass provision of SSRI, antidepressant drugs, is the result of an over medicalized society. These sentiments were voiced by Lord Warner from the United Kingdom Health Ministry at a recent hearing where he said, I have some concerns that sometimes we do, as a society, wish to put labels on things which are just part and parcel of the human condition. He went on to say, particularly in the area of depression, we did ask the National Institute for Clinical Excellence. To look into this particular area, and their guideline on depression did advise non pharmacological treatment for mild depression. So, I want to bring you some dating here. I'd mentioned 1998 as when Irving Kirsch originally recognized that there may be a significant placebo effect when it comes to antidepressant medications. And I've talked about this on Vitality Radio before. This isn't news to me, but it may be news to you because certainly you haven't heard all of my episodes and it's been a few years since I've talked about this. But that was 1998. That's a long time ago. Well, Lord uh Warner from the United Kingdom who was the United Kingdom Health Minister back in 2005, well, he also uh was saying this type of stuff back then and that for mild depression that we certainly should go non-pharmacological, but we're talking major depressive disorder, something more significant. So let's talk about whether or not pharmacology actually can help with that. Well, one of the concerns with this, uh, this second article that I'm referencing is that there is a disconnect between the advertisements and the scientific literature. And what do they mean by that? Well, he says sentiments such as Lord Warner's about over-medicalization are exactly what some pharmaceutical companies have sought to overcome with their advertising campaigns. For example, Pfizer, they've been in the news a lot lately. Their television advertisement for the antidepressant Zoloft stated that depression is a serious medical condition that may be due to a chemical imbalance and that Zoloft works to correct the imbalance. And I love that. May be due to a chemical imbalance. Again, we're just guessing here, but maybe you've got a deficiency in serotonin and our drug does help raise serotonin levels. And that's the thing. We know the drugs work to increase serotonin at least some of them do. The question is, does that matter? And we'll get into that more. Other SSRI advertising campaigns have also claimed that depression is linked to with an imbalance of the neurotransmitter serotonin and that SSRIs can correct the imbalance. The pertinent question is, are the claims made in SSRI advertising congruent with the scientific evidence? With direct proof of serotonin deficiency in a mental disorder lacking As I stated, that's not part of the diagnostics is figuring out how much serotonin you have. We don't know. Uh, People don't have a blood test for serotonin to figure out if they are serotonin deficient, therefore they need more serotonin. They look at the criteria in the DSM and say, yeah, you're depressed. Yeah, this SSRI helps with serotonin and therefore based on the serotonin deficiency theory or hypothesis, maybe it will help you with the depression. It's pretty convoluted if you understand where we're going with this. Yet in this line of reasoning, and I love this, they point that they point this out, it, backwards to make assumptions about disease causation based on the response of the disease to a treatment is logically problematic. So what do they mean by that? Meaning Saying, well, if somebody gets a result from an SSRI, so let's say somebody's put on Zoloft and they feel better, does that mean that low serotonin is the cause of their depression? You can't necessarily go backwards with drugs. An example would be aspirin. The fact that aspirin can cure a headache does not prove that headaches are due to a low level of aspirin in the brain right? There isn't aspirin in the brain. So aspirin can potentially be a treatment, but it is not the cause. And that's the question with serotonin, and it really matters. So back to Dr. Kirsch's uh, write-up. He says on February 26, 2008, so this is 10 years, okay, after he first started doing his research and saying, hey, there's a problem here, and and I keep referencing the dates, and I'm doing that to, rec- to help you recognize that our federal government in this country, the FDA specifically, is incredibly slow to respond to new data. Incredibly slow, which is why it's so shocking how fast they've been able to respond to the data that is so new and so convoluted as what's going on with COVID-19. But boy, are they moving at a record pace now but they have not been moving at a record pace in the past. In fact, when new data comes out to challenge old theories, it's often 10, 15, 20, 25 years before modern medicine modernizes itself again in response to that new data. So, in 2008, they wrote a a uh, published a, a letter in the journal PLOS Medicine. That morning, He said, I awoke to find that our paper was the front page story in all the leading national newspapers in the United Kingdom. A few months later, Random House invited me to expand the article into a book entitled The Emperor's New Drugs, Exploding the Antidepressant Myth which was has since been translated into French, Italian, Japanese, Polish, and Turkish. Two years later, the book and the research reported in it was a topic of a five-page cover story in the influential magazine Newsweek, which I've actually referenced on previous episodes of Vitality Radio. And two years after that, it was the focus of a 15-minute segment on 60 Minutes, America's top-rated television news program. Somehow, I had been transformed from a mild-mannered university professor in a, to a media superhero, or supervillain, depending on whom you asked. What had my colleagues and I done to warrant this transformation, he asks. To answer that question, we have to go back to 1998, as I mentioned before, when a former graduate student, Guy Saperstein, and I published a meta-analysis on antidepressants in an online journal of the American Psychological Association. When they were new, meta-analyses, and meta-analyses are when they take a bunch of independent studies, cram them all together, and kind of weed out the bad studies and take the good studies and see what really came of those studies. And back in 1998, those were relatively new. But now meta-analyses are considered actually one of the most effective ways to really gauge whether or not study results are what they seem to be because basically you take a small group of people in a study and add it to another small group of people to another small group of people with similar study criteria and when you add it all up you may have dozens of studies that support or don't support uh, the hypotheses that that uh, that was originally uh, uh, they were trying to prove basically in the study so that's what they used back in 1998 And when Saperstein and I began our analysis, he says, of the antidepressant clinical trial, we were not particularly interested in antidepressants. In fact, we were interested in understanding the placebo effect. That's what we searched out to do. Uh, But we thought that antidepressants might be a good spot to look. After all, one of the prime characteristics of depression is the sense of hopelessness that depressed people feel. If you ask depressed people to tell you what the worst thing in their life is, many will tell you that it is their depression. The British psychologist John Teasdale called this being depressed about depression. If that is the case, then the mere promise of an effective treatment should help to alleviate depression by replacing hopelessness with hopefulness, the hope that one will recover after all. It was with this in mind that we set out to measure the placebo effect in depression not depression itself. We researched the literature for studies in which depressed patients had been randomized to receive an inert placebo or no treatment at all. The studies we found also included data on the response to antidepressants because that was the only place one finds data on the response to placebo among depressed patients. I was not particularly interested in the drug effect, he said. I assumed that antidepressants were effective. As a psychotherapist, I sometimes referred my severely depressed clients to prescriptions of antidepressant drugs. Sometimes the condition of my clients improved when they began taking antidepressants. Other times they did not. But given my longstanding, understand, or longstanding interest in the placebo effect, I should have known better. But he says back then, I didn't. Analyzing the data we had found, we were not surprised to find a substantial placebo effect on depression. What surprised us was how small the drug effect was. 75% of the improvement in the drug group also occurred when people were given dummy pills or placebos with no active ingredient in them. So, 75% of the improvement in the drug group also occurred In the placebo group. That's a significant amount. Our uh, meta-analysis proved to be very controversial. Its publication led to heated exchanges and uh, much press. The response from critics was that these data could not be accurate. Perhaps our search had led us to analyze an unrepresented subset of clinical trials. Antidepressants had been evaluated in many trials, the critics said, And the effectiveness had been well-established. And it's so important that we understand because we're hearing so much about science and follow the science and follow the scientists and so on and so forth, especially right now over the last couple of years. Science is never settled. It's always up for debate. And there's always new research that can potentially shed light on the flaws in old research. So for all of these people to give them so much trouble... I guess it's fine because all of it should be questioned. The people that say it doesn't work should be questioned. The people who say it doesn't or does work should be questioned. Everybody should be questioning anything when it comes to pharmaceuticals because we are playing with these things, practicing with these things, prescribing these things based on limited research in most cases. We're going to talk about what it takes for the FDA to approve a new drug here in just a minute, and it's really, really interesting, and I think somewhat astonishing. So in response to the critics, They decided to replicate their study with a different set of clinical trials. To do this, he said, we used the Freedom of Information Act to request that the Food and Drug Administration send us the data that pharmaceutical companies had sent to it in the process of obtaining approval for six new generation antidepressants that accounted for the bulk of antidepressant prescriptions being written at the time. There are a number of advantages to the FDA data set. Most important, the FDA requires that the pharmaceutical companies provide information on all of the clinical trials that they have sponsored. Thus, we had data on unpublished trials as well as published trials. This turned out to be very important. Almost half of the clinical trials sponsored by the drug companies have not been published. The result of the unpublished trials were known only to the drug companies and to the FDA, and most of them failed to find a significant benefit of drug over placebo. So nearly half of the studies failed to find a significant difference of the drug versus the placebo. That's big in and of itself. A second advantage of the FDA trials in the FDA data set is that they all use the same primary measure of depression, what's known as the Hamilton Depression Scale, or the HAM-D. That made it easy to understand the clinical significance of the drug placebo differences. Finally, the data in the FDA files were based were the basis upon which the medications were approved. In that sense, they have a privileged status. If there's anything wrong with those trials, the medications should not have been approved in the first place. So in other words, the trials should be pretty strong trials, trials that can be trusted, that however they came out, good or bad, uh, the response should be pretty trustworthy, at least according to the FDA standards. But that's interesting, isn't it, that these manufacturers of six new antidepressant drugs produced many, many trials, and almost half of them, them were failed trials. And that's in companies who had a vested interest in making the trial work to show in their favor what they wanted, and almost half of them were unable to do so. So in and of itself, the data is a little weak, but let's go on. In the data set, data set sent to us by the FDA, only 43 percent of the trials showed a significantly or sorry, a statistically significant benefit of drug over placebo. The remaining 57 were failed or negative trials. Similar results have been reported in other meta-analyses, including one conducted by the FDA itself. The results of our analysis indicated that the placebo response was 82 percent of the response. To these antidepressants. I'm going to restate that. I want you to listen closely. The results of our analysis indicated that the placebo response was 82% of the response to these antidepressants. Subsequently, my colleagues and I replicated our meta-analysis on a larger number of trials that have been submitted to the FDA. With this expanded data set, we found once again that 82% of the drug response was duplicated by the placebo. More important, in both, analysis, uh, both analyses, the mean difference between drug and placebo was less than two points on the Ham-D. The Ham-D is a 17-item scale on which people can score from 0 to 53 points depending on how depressed they are. A six-point difference can be obtained just by changes in sleep patterns, with no change in any other symptom of depression, so the 1.8 difference that we found between drug and placebo was very small indeed. Small enough, in fact, to be clinically insignificant. But you don't have to take my word for it, he says. The National Institute of Health and Care Excellence which drafts treatment guidelines for the National Health Service in the United Kingdom, has established a three-point difference between drug and placebo on the HAMD as a criterion of clinical significance. So they say it needs to be three points, but according to the drug manufacturer's actual data, it's only 1.8 points. And here is something really important that he spells out that I want you to understand because it, it makes a difference, especially when you're hearing headlines about new drugs and, or seeing uh, advertisements about new drugs. He says, I should mention here the difference between statistical significance and clinical significance. Statistical significance concerns how reliable an effect is. In other words, is it a real effect or is it just due to chance? Statistical significance does not tell you anything about the size of the effect. Clinical significance, on the other hand, deals with the size of an effect and whether it would make any difference in a person's life. Imagine, for example, that a study of 500,000 people was done showing that smiling increases life expectancy by five minutes. With 500,000 subjects, I can virtually guarantee you that the difference will be statistically significant, but clinically meaningless. And that is a very, very important factor. And it may sound hard to swallow. And if you are one who is on an antidepressant, I want you to understand a couple of things that I am not saying. First off, I'm not saying that you are having a placebo effect. You may not be. You may be. It's hard to know for sure because as I'm going to state here in just a minute, as we move through this a little bit, we will recognize that some people absolutely do get a primary effect from antidepressants. The second thing I'm not saying is that you should drop your antidepressant because it's not working for you. Again, I don't know if it is or it isn't. I'm certainly not your doctor. But one thing that you have to consider too, if you ever want to make a change with an antidepressant of any kind, reducing your doses, increasing your dosage, going on it in the first place or getting off of it, do so under a very careful eye of your doctor or your pharmacist or both and absolutely have a... Uh, somebody overlook looking over you, uh, your spouse or a, a friend, someone that you live with, something like that. The first two weeks of an adjustment there seem to be the harshest in terms of the biggest side effects. Uh, Uh, suicide and homicidal thoughts and things like that. So it's important to understand that you do want to be very, very cautious coming off of these things and going on these things. We do know that that's where the highest rate of risk occurs. And I am not stating to you at all that you should get off of your antidepressant if you are on it. What I'm trying to do is educate people on the pros and the cons. And if this theory of serotonin And depression even holds any water because the more that people study the theory, the more it just doesn't hold up very well at all. So let's talk about the severity of depression and the antidepressant effectiveness because critics of the 2002 meta-analyses argued that their results were based on clinical trials conducted on subjects who were simply not very depressed. And in more depressed patients, they argued, a more substantial difference might be found. This criticism led Kirsch and his colleagues to reanalyze the FDA data in 2008. He says, we categorize the c- clinical trials in the FDA database according to the severity of the patient's depression at the beginning of the trial using conventionally used categories of depression. As it turns out, all but one of the trials were conducted on moderately depressed patients and the trial failed to show any significance between drug and placebo. Indeed, the difference was virtually nil, 0 to 0, sorry, 0.07 points on the HAMD. Remember 1.8 is the average of the other studies and 3.0 is considered statistically significant. So the difference here was 0.07 between the placebo and the drug, so insignificant completely. All of the rest of the trials were conducted on patients whose mean baseline scores put them in the very severe category of depression, and the drug placebo difference was below the level of clinical significance in those studies with the heavily depressed or very severe depression as well. Still, severity did make a difference, it says. Patients at the very extreme end of depression severity, those scoring at least 28 on the HAMD, showed an average drug placebo difference of 4.36 points. To find out how many patients fell within this extremely depressed group, I asked Mark Zimmerman from Brown University School of Medicine to send me the raw data from a study in which he and his colleagues assessed HAMD scores of patients who had been diagnosed with major depressive disorder after presenting for an intake at a psychiatric outpatient practice. Patients with HAMD scores of 28 or above represented 11% of these patients. This suggests that 89% of depressed patients are not receiving a clinically significant benefit from the, depressant, the antidepressants that they are prescribed. 89%. So it actually got worse when they reassessed based on the level of depression. However, as he said, people that were severe in that 11% group, they did see a significant uh, change at 4.36 points. And uh, according to the experts, it needs at least to be three points and they got a 4.36. So there was a clinically significant and statistically significant change, but only in 11% of the people And that 11% number is even being called into question based on this. He says, yet this 11% figure may overestimate the number of people who benefit from antidepressants antidepressants are also prescribed to people who do not qualify for the diagnosis of major depression. My neighbor's pet dog died. His physician prescribed an antidepressant. A friend in the U.S. was diagnosed with lumbar muscle spasms and was prescribed an antidepressant. I have lost count of the number of people who have told me they are prescribed antidepressants when complaining of insomnia, even though insomnia is a frequently reported side effect of antidepressants. In fact, people with IBS are often also prescribed antidepressants. About 20% of patients suffering from insomnia in the United States are given antidepressants as a treatment by their primary care physicians, despite the fact that the popularity of antidepressants in the treatment of insomnia is not supported by a large amount of any convincing data, but rather by opinions and beliefs of the prescribing physicians. So the numbers are probably actually even lower in terms of people actually being helped. So the question then is, if this stuff actually doesn't work in the vast majority of Americans, 89% or more, how is it possible that medicines with such weak efficacy data were approved by the FDA? The answer lies in an understanding of the approval criteria used by the FDA. The FDA requires two adequately conducted clinical trials showing a significant difference between drug and placebo, but there is a loophole. There is no limit to the number of trials that can be conducted in search of these two significant trials. In other words, you could literally run 10 trials or 15, and if you can get two to produce the, produce the results you're looking for, then those are the two that you can present to the FDA. You do have to show them the other trials, but if two of them work, the FDA can consider it for approval. And that's why, as I stated before, 57% of the trials with antidepressants were either failed or negative, and only 43% actually showed statistically but not clinically statistically significant benefit Uh, they give an, an example the most egregious example of this implementation of this criteria is provided by the fda's approval of velazodone in 2011. Seven controlled efficacy trials were conducted. The first five failed to show any significant difference on any measure of depression, and the mean drug placebo difference in these studies was less than one half of a point on the HAMD. And in two of the three trials, the direction of the difference actually favored the placebo. So, two of the five trials. Two of the five trials that failed, the placebo was actually more effective. The company ran two more studies and managed to obtain small but significant drug placebo differences 1.7 points, though not as significant as some experts think it needs to be, at least not in the UK, that wouldn't be significant enough. The mean drug placebo difference across the seven studies was 1.01 on the HAMD, so one point. This was sufficient. For the FDA to grant approval and the information approved by the FDA for informing doctors and patients reads, the efficacy of Vibrid, which is that vilazidone, was established in two eight-week randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trials. There is no mention made of the five failed trials that preceded the two successful ones. That's a problem. So when you're thinking about FDA approval of a new drug, You need to keep in mind that in many cases, certainly not all, but in many cases, the drug manufacturer can try and fail and try and fail and try and fail until they maybe even by luck alone get the result they're looking for in two drugs or two trials and present that to the FDA and in many cases, get approved. That's what happened with Vibrid. And I believe it happens with pharmaceuticals all the time. You'll read, if, it, and I read some geeky stuff, but I read all the time. In fact, I have an, a weekly email sent to me by Google uh, talking to me about drug approvals so I can see what's happening on that side of things. Mm-hmm. And in many cases, drug companies, once they've hit four or five or six studies and they can't get the result they look for, they scrap researching that drug anymore. But if the result is close and they feel like if they run a couple more trials, they can get there, like in the case of Vibrid, that does happen. Being on a antidepressant, an SSRI, short and long term can come with many potential side effects. And so where we now know that the theory of serotonin deficiency being the cause of depression is probably false. It's been disproven in a variety of different ways. Maybe we need to scrap that whole concept from the start and figure out what's actually underlying depression. And I believe to a very, very large degree, it has nothing to do with Any kind of a deficiency, it has very much to do with mindset itself. That being said, there are things you can be deficient in, such as magnesium and other deficiencies that play a role. Omega 3 is mega, mega important in the brain. And as I talked about on episode 164 and 166, potentially probiotic deficiency. There's better evidence in my book, and this is my opinion, it hasn't been studied side by side, but when you look at the meta-analyses of the SSRIs versus the studies that have been done so far on probiotics specific to major depressive disorder, it appears to me that there's more evidence that probiotics play a role in depression than do Uh, does serotonin in a significant way. So you may want to go back and listen to those two episodes, 164 and 166. Let's talk about a couple of lifestyle things that you can do. Deep breathing, and not just any deep breathing, but specific exercises you can do that have clinically proven to reduce stress and anxiety by actual markers in the blood, uh, such as cortisol and things like that, guided meditation, and even something as simple as a journal, specifically starting with gratitude. These are all things that, are, that can be done in the privacy of your home home that have no side effects, that have clinical benefit, not just statistical benefit. Remember, Vitality Radio is always brought to you by Vitality Nutrition. My goal here is to just simply inform you and let you make the best decisions for your health. You may have not noticed this. Perhaps uh, it's flown past you over the last year and a half, but media seems to be almost universally trumpeting the same things over and over when it comes to our health. It's getting harder and harder to find independent voices that aren't being silenced on social media and a variety of other places. So tune in to the Vitality Radio podcast because some of the stuff that I talk about there is even more detailed than what I talk about on the radio. Call us if you have any other questions about anything you heard on this episode or any other. 801-292-6662. That's 801-292-6662. It does not matter if you're near Bountiful. We can take care of you over the phone at that number. Thank you so much for listening to me. My name is Jared St. Clair, and this has been another episode of Vitality Radio.
0: You've been listening to the Vitality Radio podcast. Enjoy your week. In the meantime, Jared will be feverishly searching for the latest nutrition info to educate you on and wading into mounds of propaganda to help steer you through it. Vitality Radio is researched and written by Jared St. Clair. Our awesome music is by Brian Bob Young. Support Vitality Radio by subscribing and giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or your favorite podcast source. Don't forget to follow us at Vitality Radio on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Please let us know your thoughts about this episode by using the hashtag Vitality Radio Podcast. And if you like what you hear, go tell somebody with a share, a screenshot, or an airdrop. Thank you.